Do food cravings come from experience? Are we born with them? Both? Does it matter? Do they serve a fundamental purpose? If we crave something, does that mean our bodies have a deficiency? In this episode, and the next, the good Dr. Kashi discusses the psychology and physiology of cravings, as well as busting some common craving myths. Roll the intro! Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Coffee with Cashy, and I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy. I've been working on a thing to do some stuff with the people over there, and I wanted to share some of that today. I've been, I've been, what's the, what's the, the term lots of internetpreneurs use? Deep dive, deep diving into craving stuff because I'm developing a course, I'm developing a class, and this is sort of like a training thing. I'm trying to figure out what the words that, that, that cover everybody here uh, to teach a little bit about craving-related things, and, and this topic is more specifically on food addiction, and I want to talk about a, a specific subset of, of food addiction in, in the context of cravings. And I've read a bunch of books and took a bunch of notes, and, and what I'm going to do is actually just read you all the fun tidbits, all the fun tidbits I got out of the, the 50 or 60 or so primary source materials I have consumed. And primary source is a fancy term for uh, they did an experiment and then published the results of that experiment in an academic journal. And so in an ideal situation, those typically only have one sort of tidbit anyway. And I'm going to go through them. I actually have like 60. So this might take a while, but it is like a rough draft of uh, something that I am going to be making in the future. So this is something that, you know, might be fun for you. It might not. Now you'll know. You'll have 60 points to take with you. And some of those points may be triggering. Hmm? So I just want to leave that as it, as it lays. Um, so what I'm, what I'm going to do right now is give you a rather pseudoscientific, cherry-picked, heavily biased, and brutally modified, but empirically and anecdotally informed narrative review of the soft science of food cravings. When I say soft science, I mean this is different from like doing brain scans and trying to you know, corroborate like neuroscience and, and medical stuff, this is way more to do with um, interpersonal interactions and surveys and things of that nature and drawing, drawing conclusions from people's previous behaviors and what they report, okay? So that's just to be, to be clear, this is definitely softer science in terms of uh, like psychology, I suppose. Okay, each one of these points on its own could be a video article or book, whatever, in its own right. So take it with a grain of salt and, and use it to inform your decisions based on food cravings with my bias or not. Okay, <laughs> so first, like, like a dutiful academic, what we are going to do during this conversation is define our terms. And I am operationalizing the term craving as an urge to eat a food you probably like. This is an important fact because it is possible to have a craving for something that you do not like. <laughs> For, for something that you typically avoid, okay? So this is an urge to eat a food you probably like. Now I want to talk about the psychology of food cravings a little bit first. And I want to say that food cravings are extremely common events experienced by most everybody. I think the people who claim that they, that they do not experience food cravings have a different definition of what food craving is. So I'm just going to say for the sake of conversation, everybody experiences food cravings. And that food cravings are closely associated with but still disconnected liking of food. Seldom do people crave foods they normally detest, but it happens. 
People often crave things that they openly like avoid sometimes. It's interesting, okay? Um, the most commonly craved foods are highly palatable. Hope that makes sense. Feels good in the mouth hole and tastes good, okay? So again, obvious points. These are good. Craving a food and over-consuming a food that you crave is more of a coincidence. It is more of a coincidence, which I think is worth noting, okay? People frequently eat one food when they crave another. You might, I'm sure you crave different foods than what you're currently consuming all the time, even if you consider yourself completely open. Like, just because you feel like pizza now, does that mean you just go get pizza every time you feel like it? No, <laughs> right? Uh, Craving a food and eating that food have a tenuous, obfuscated relationship. Like I said, just because you feel like eating something now, if you already have something made, you're still probably going to eat that. Even if, like I said, you're out of the realm of something like dieting. Just because you have an urge to do something, it is disconnected from you actually doing it. There's some, there's some cognition going on there, which we do spend a lot of time on. Uh, you can be hungry with zero cravings, right? Like, oh, I know I need to eat something, but... Everything sounds bad. Nothing sounds good, right? And then there's the exact opposite where you're not hungry at all. You are more or less satisfied in terms of the amount of food you consume, but you still feel like eating something. So hunger and cravings are also disconnected from each other, which I think is fun. So I want to talk about the nature of food cravings a little bit now that we have some of the, some of the oh, uh, introductory psychology taken out of the way. Uh, a food craving is both an intense experience and directed at a particular food or taste. So that reaches us back to the definition we have of food craving, which is an urge to eat a food you probably like, okay? And one thing that I did notice that I do want to pound into everybody because I think it's super duper cool is that the distribution of food cravings when you, when you accumulate all the survey data is very similar to the distribution people have of phobias or clinically relevant fears. Okay, some 20 to 30% of people, I think they have mild fears, right? Spiders, dogs, thunder, blood, whatever, uh, just as they might have a mild craving for chocolate, ice cream, donuts, pizza, okay? The distribution between cravings and phobias are similar, which I think is interesting, and that gives us some perspective a little bit later. So when you see, think about, or experience something that you fear, it alters the way you think, it alters the way you feel, and it may alter the way you behave, right? Just because you're scared of a dog, does that mean you're going to go f full ham and, and kill it or run away the opposite direction? No. For the same reason, just because you crave a food, does that mean you're just going to go full ham and eat it till you explode or completely run the opposite direction? No, right? Also similar thought, feeling, behavioral interactions. Now, just like phobias, I would say about 1% of the population or so has a severe phobia. Right? This is something that is more clinically relevant, uh, an extreme fear that's typified by an absolute avoidance of a feared object or event. Some people, about 1%, have a completely and totally irrational fear of something that they, that they do whatever they can to avoid or keep themselves safe from. All right? And a great majority of people <laughs> can identify a time when they have experienced a distinct freakish urge to consume a particular food. And this is probably a similar distribution at any given time, okay? For a much smaller population, like I just said, these urges will feel irresistible. And the behavioral and emotional consequences of having to deal with these urges can be pretty serious. 
it can be pretty serious. And I think that's interesting. I'm sure you can all think of a time where like, man, you just had the hardest time restraining yourself and then you just gave in. And, and then the consequences of giving in, you may have had to clean up later <laughs> or felt it later, right? So like fears, I think food cravings are best conceptualized on a continuum of experiences. Remember the emotional, the, the binary, throw it in the garbage, right? It's, do I crave a food or do I not crave a food? It's how much do I crave a food on a scale from zero to 100, right? You could crave a food zero or you can crave a food extreme. But whether or not you crave a food is, is actually irrelevant. Just like fear, you could be kind of afraid of something or extremely afraid of something and anywhere in between, right? Cravings are similar. And so now that we have covered a little bit of the psychology, a little bit of the nature, like where they come from in terms of like we can, we can relate them to fears, I want to get into the stereotypes of cravings a little bit, which I think is super fun, all right? Uh, and this is where some of the triggering stuff might, might happen with people because, well, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, and I want to bring some of them out and lay them, lay them out. Uh, it is pretty obvious that chocolate is the most commonly craved food. And there are some interesting data-related things to uh, explain this that I'm going to get into a little bit. It is, it is about half of all craving reported, re reported craving experiences are for chocolate. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, mainly because it's, it's a ubiquitous food. <laughs> like chocolate is pretty much in every country all the time versus other foods that you might only see in the U.S. And so when you culminate all of the international data, chocolate's going to show up the most common as the most commonly craved food because it is probably one of the more common foods on earth. Okay. Next to like bread, but bread is separate from, you know, the highly palatable orosensory like stimulus that chocolate has. Okay. So chocolate, like I was just talking about, has an advantageous orosensory interaction. That just means it's a mouthgasm for most people. <laughs> it's basically what that means. Um, and chocolate is also associated with celebration. It's associated with romance. It's associated with sinning, right? It's associated with negative things, even it, taboo, right? A sinful delight or whatever, you know, the dove language is now, right? Uh, it's associated with medicine. Like I consume this chocolate because it's medicinal. And to some degree, it's, it's associated with sadness, right? You consume the chocolate as, in a way to, as a way to avoid sadness and feel the way that you feel when you were possibly first introduced to chocolate. So it has, it's, it's a very multifaceted tool. And so it is no wonder why people consistently crave it, okay? Chocolate is also a food with special status, right? It's often associated with luxury, and that is just a downward arrow from times past where only certain people got access to chocolate. And now it is available to everybody, but it still ret retains a shadow of that luxurious nature that it once had. Okay. And that also, that also has an impact on whether or not a person would crave it because of the social status it has. Uh, even if it's small, it's still a contributing factor. Now, unsurprisingly, it is associated by consumers and some advertisers versus scientists, which are way different in this context, with addiction. Chocolate addiction, sugar addiction, things of that nature. It's consistently uh, compared to addictive substances, either when people say that they're addicted to it or advertisers, other people say that you can be addicted to it. It's really a, an advertising fear-mongering method because of its high palatability and the since people report to crave it all of the time, people kind of take advantage and hijack that machinery to play one story or the other, okay? More women than men crave chocolate. Men crave other things. Uh, but women definitely crave chocolate. 
Maybe that's a marketing thing. I actually don't know. Uh, I actually think more women than men are, are involved in craving-related studies, and so that's part of the reason why that data might be skewed. Okay. Now, here's an interesting part relating to, related to cravings and menstruation. Okay. This is where things get a little spicy for people. Women definitely report that their generic food cravings go up prior to menstruation, specifically for chocolate, okay? But here's the fun thing, is that the cravings for those same foods that they, they claim to crave prior to menstruation, they maintain those cravings even after menopause. And this is where things get interesting and spicy in terms of learning and behavior. So it's quite common that like before your period or during your period, a peri-period times, peri-menstruation, it's I crave X food, right? And so it's easy to think that, well, my hormones are, are doing the flap-a-doodle-do, and therefore my craving for this thing makes sense because my hormones are flap-a-doodle-doodling, technical term. But what ends up happening is that even after menstruation is over, right, during menopause, post for the post-fertility season of life, the cravings for those foods remain. And that means a couple of things. One, it means that hormone fluctuations in and of itself are disconnected from craving foods. In and of itself. It probably means that this is a learned behavior. Oh, interesting. Super interesting. And that it is, even though it is associated with with menstruation from a survey standpoint, the maintenance of those cravings post-menstruation really dictate that the craving of certain foods around periods is a learned slash cultural phenomenon. Interesting, I think that's super cool. But this is good, it means that your physiology still works in your favor and something can be done about it. Because what that also means is like, well, if this hormone makes me crave chocolate, well then the absence of that hormone, my chocolate craving will go away. No, it's learned because, right, I'll discuss that some other time, okay? Now, this means that, again, something can be done about it. Now, craving for sweet foods, such as cakes, cookies, desserts, or just something sweet, is often the next most common category after chocolate, and I think I discussed that a little, little while ago, in that uh, I actually think chocolate is the most commonly craved food across the world because it is probably the, one of the more common foods across the world. <laughs> Uh, in terms of highly palatable substances that everybody likes. And so everything else is going to become second to chocolate because that's more geographically relevant foodstuffs at that point. Right? Chocolate is ubiquitous around the world. It has less of a cultural component than other foods do. And that's probably why it's craved the most. Okay? In some countries, they crave some foods. In other countries, they crave others. But everybody pretty much likes chocolate because it's everywhere. Okay? Now, here's an interesting, some interesting factoids about food choice and restriction. Okay? Or cravings and restriction. And the differentiator between restricting your food, physically restricting your food, versus mentally restricting your food, which are huge differences, huge differences. And I'm going to go into that in a second. It's that both, both in the short term and the long term, fasting is associated with fewer cravings overall. And this is seen in a lot of people who physically restrict themselves from food, that the less they eat, the less they feel like eating, which might sound crazy to a lot of you, but a lot of you also have spent a life dieting. And so that is the differentiator is that you go through periods of mentally restricting yourself from food. And the mental restriction from food is actually what increases, what increases your cravings versus the physical restriction from food, which is not eating because there's no food around versus not eating because you're forcing yourself to not eat. Okay, two different, two different uh, scenarios here. 
uh, the decrease in craving is generalized across is, is generalized in all food groups. And you see that um, in, in some studies with like the ketogenic diet or, or very low calorie diets, where really the less you eat, the less you feel like eating. Okay, now when you inject real life into this equation, when you're stimulated by other things, that's where cravings become interesting. Okay, and rebound overfeeding is rare in people with minimum dieting history. So that means that if you spent your whole life trying to diet down, well, then you're more likely that when you stop dieting to mark that stop dieting by overeating. <laughs> uh, but people who maybe go through periods of of low calorie intake for, for other reasons, the likelihood that they rebound over overfeed is much lower than a person who purposefully diets and then marks the end of that diet with overfeeding. Now, chronic dieters, like I said, they tell a different story and this is, this is useful. Some, some people go through periods of eating less, but the periods of them eating less, do they mark them by eating a lot more to make up for it? No, only chronic dieters tend to do that, which which falls into what's called a restriction disinhibition sort of behavioral pattern, where if you're purposefully trying to not eat something, it forces you to focus on it more, which makes you more likely to overconsume it. Okay. So, so psychologically restrained eaters, they're depriving themselves of the things that they like, which is different from a physically restrained eater, which is just restrained from food in general, two different things. And so monotony combined with self-restriction that's, that is associated with increased food cravings. That is associated with increased food, food cravings, which is why I like to convince people to, hey, eat everything all the time, what you like. <laughs> because if you go without something you like long enough and you start to obsess over it, well, then you, you can divine the rest, right? Okay. Uh, if a normal person randomly fasts for a day or a few days, rebound overfeeding is modest. Right? You go a day without eating, okay, the next day you might eat a little bit more, but overall, the total caloric load over the course of the next couple of days ends up evening itself out. But if a chronic psychological and physical dieter heavily restricts themselves, specifically avoiding foods they enjoy, well, then they're the ones that go to town. Interesting. This is ironic process theory at work, okay? Dieters' attempts at resisting foods, they lead to cravings for those same foods. The more you try and forget about the pink elephant, the more it sticks out in your mind, right? So in the lab anyway, restrained eaters have a stronger desire to eat the foods they crave at the start, and then they abandoned the psychological testing at an earlier time than other people do when they said they can get access to their craved food faster. This is what happened in the lab. So in the lab, a bunch of dieters were given a task where they had to restrain themselves from eating, and then they said, hey, if you stop the test now, then you can go have the food that you want, and the people who were allocated into the group of chronic mentally restrictive dieters, they ended up throwing in the towel in their psychological tests much faster. Interesting. Okay. And this, like, this is all rounded out by essentially psychologically restrained eaters. They report more food cravings than physically restrained eaters, <laughs> uh, which are a little bit difficult to differentiate, but you, you will know which group you are in. Uh, some people just don't feel like eating, and so they eat less, and some people do feel like eating more, and they eat less anyway, <laughs> right? And so this, this does suggest a restriction-induced craving phenomenon, and this becomes learned, just like, just like the craving for chocolate around the period might be learned, might be learned. You can also teach yourself to crave foods too. This is partly why, and that if you consistently restrict something that you want, well, then you're more likely to crave that thing when you restrict. And so this becomes a habit loop or a learning loop that you end up putting your points in. 
And so people who have chronically dieted versus people who eat normally, let's just say, normal eaters crave fewer foods than chronic dieters do. That's because there's an associative learning where if you consistently go without something that you want, well, the more you obsess over what that thing is. So I find that interesting. Okay, maybe, maybe it gives you some perspective. Okay, now in terms of disordered eating patterns, mood has an influence on binge eating and people with disordered eating for sure, right? If, you've, if you have a more difficult time controlling your feelings and you're more likely to show a loss of control eating behavior with emotional distress, right? You're, you're using food as a tool at that point. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to leave you guys hanging here. I'm going to drop a couple of conclusions, though. I do want to say that food cravings are typically benign, but sometimes they're emotionally costly. And that the desire to eat is a defining component of a food craving, which is different from actually eating the food. And there is an overlap between cravings, hunger, and the likelihood to eat. But they are an accidental association that we make with each other. Okay, And that intense cravings, they deviate from normal hunger experiences, and that cravings are closely associated with mood relative than they are with hunger. So I'm gonna leave you with those sayings. I got super excited, went off track. I still got about half my notes to go through, I think. So I hope you guys found that entertaining. So anyway, this is sort of research I've been doing. I got about 60 references here uh, that I, I may or may not give to you guys. I did the reading, so you didn't have to, but I'll, I, will, I will bow to your demands, as it were. Y'all have an absolutely wonderful day. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Cashy? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Cashy is out! <laughs>